He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. And he goes on to say he knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Well, though this quote comes from a song about a yuletide cultural figure's arrival, it also seems to capture very well the spirit of our age when it comes to how God deals with his creatures. Almost an expectancy that they better be good. They better be nice. You see, we have this notion that it's always the naughty who are out. The naughty get all the bad stuff. Not anything good. But if you're nice, you're in. If you're naughty, you're out. If you're nice, you're in. But did you know that's not good theology? According to this book, that's bad theology. That's not how the gospel works. And praise God that it doesn't work that way. Because I'm not always nice. I'm not always good. I'm really rather bad sometimes. And maybe you are too. So there really is no good news in just asking you to be nice. As if that were enough. You see, if you may be wondering right now, Joe, what has this got to do with Christmas? This verse, this scripture reading that I'm about to read. Well, listen. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You say, what does that got to do with Christmas? Well, my friend, that has everything to do with Christmas. The reason for Christmas. It has everything to do with it. The message of Christmas is a message of truly good news. Really good news that finally there is something more than our trying harder or trying to do better or to be nicer that is, can be 
provided for us as a gift. But we've got to understand why we need that gift. A lot of people, they, they see the, the phrase up every this time of year and they see Jesus is the reason for the season and they often skeptically remark something like, yeah, but what's the question? If he's the answer, if Jesus is the answer, what's the question? And that's what we first need to establish and understand is there is a problem and the Bible tells us it is that problem that divines a divine that requires a divine remedy, not one that we can get here or in the collective or on anything that we can find in ourselves or in anything else in this world. The solution has to come from outside. But we need to understand that. And that's what Paul was doing in the rest of this chapter, in, in, in chapter 3. He's been basically from chapter uh, uh, verse 9 to 20, where we picked up the reading at verse 21. Up until that point, he's been basically corralling all of humanity and saying no matter who you are, what your background, where you're from, no matter what your state, what your race, where your people group, whatever, what's your gender, none of that matters. You all have fallen short of the glory of God. He's brought all of humanity under the condemnation and just righteous condemnation of God and says that we're utterly and completely without hope. He's been demonstrating universal guilt before a holy God. And that's the problem. That's the problem that Christmas was meant to resolve. Often we hear Christians speak of there being two ways to live. Sometimes Christians say, well, there's, there's God's way and there's your way. Or there's two ways to live. You can live for God or you can live for yourself. Well, that's not entirely correct. Matter of fact, it's considerably incorrect. Because the notion goes you can either try to live life on your own way and find death, or you can live life God's way, meaning follow all that he says and do the right things and be nice and all that, and then you can find life. But folks, that's not the gospel. That's a lie that smells like smoke. It didn't come from God. That kind of thinking does not take into account the reality of our spiritual situation, nor what the Bible presents as the answer to it. You see, contrary to that notion that there are two ways, you can live for God or you can live for yourself, There are not actually two ways, but there are three ways. There are three ways, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The first two wrong ways, and then the right or third way. The right or true third way. There's actually three ways. And they're in this passage that we read. There's a Jewish way. The way of trying to fulfill all the requirements of God in our own strength and hope that we can be good enough, we can try to be moral enough, or we can go the Gentile way, the way of disobedience, the way of self-expression, the way of self-actualization. We can go that way, the Gentile way, and try to say, I'll define salvation on my own terms. I'll bring my own heaven on earth. I will accomplish it. We will accomplish it together. 
That's another way. But then there's a third way, and that is the gospel way. The gospel is revealed by God is the third way to find what we truly need and what we should be seeking. But let's first of all, let's examine those first two wrong ways for a few moments. Here are the problems with the other two ways. The ways that both Jews and Gentiles embraced, either whether you're trying to be very religious or you're trying to be very, very self-determined and actualized or whatever word you want to put in there about living life according to your own standards and your own ideas. Whichever way you go, they both are dead in streets. That's the bottom line. Those two ways are what Tertullian, one of the ancient church fathers, called the two thieves of the gospel. Basically, both of these are thieves. They are, they are thieves, and they steal the truth of the gospel by what they try to get you to do. And they're very different. One's way over here, and the other one's way over there. But they accomplish a theft of the true gospel good news. Who are they? Well, they have names. Have a couple of names you can, and, and probably others that you could come up with, but you'll get the idea. One of the names is moralism or legalism. And that's basically you're trying to be good enough, hoping that you can do enough good, be nice enough, as it were, and then everything will be all right with you spiritually and in your relationship with God. That's the way of moralism or legalism. But on the other side, over here, is a very different path. It's the way of hedonism, or it also goes under another name, relativism. It's basically where there is no one way or right or wrong. You decide for your own. It's all relative, so you kind of make up the rules as you go, and you define what life and what a good life is, and everybody else should just be fine with that. And you know what that means? If those are the two options, then the gospel is opposed to both of them, not just to one of them. One of them might look better on the outside, might not be as selfish, but both of those are opposed by the true gospel. Moralism and legalism stresses obedience apart from grace. It says you can do this. God will look at your good works and he will be satisfied if you do enough. It's the idea of I obey, therefore I'm accepted. If I work hard to obey biblical principles, then God will bless me. Now, a lot of Christians know better, at least on the surface, that that's not really right. But they often live that way. They often live that way. They drain the power from the gospel because they really do think, ah, I had a longer quiet time this morning. God's surely got a little bigger grin on his face today than he had yesterday. Or, you know, I, I did something nice for that person that, that actually was really hurt me. And, you know, I know God loves me more today because of that. See, it works that way in our psyche. Even, if, even though you wouldn't, on the paper, you would not say, of course it's not my works that are going to save me. But we, can, we get so easily away from, and we think it's all about what we do and how we perform 
It's called performance Christianity. It's how we perform and that somehow that makes us more loved and appreciated by God. But that's not what the gospel teaches. The other thief, that the hedonism or relativism thief, if you will, it stresses grace without truth. It looks at and kind of its creed goes like this. Well, if God exists, which I'm not sure he does at all, but if he does, it's his job. It's his job to accept everyone because we're all doing the best we can. And certainly he can't require any more than that if he or she is there. They can't, can't require any more than that, can't expect any more than that. And so that person ends up basically trying to just kind of make it up as they go. And they're the determiner of what's good enough and what's not. They are the ones who themselves decide that this will be enough. This irreligious person would say, I don't have to obey anyone else. I just need to follow what seems right to me. And if there is a being out there, that should be good enough for him. And if he's not, well, you know, it's too bad. That's the other opposite, the polar opposite. But do you see that one of those is religion, what we call, and again, I'm using the word religion not in, in, the, in the good sense in which we can use the word. If we're talking about religion, meaning talking about having faith in Christ, sometimes that's called religion. And, and we talk about the old-time religion in hymn books and all that, or give me that old-time. That, that's nothing wrong with that. But I'm talking about religion in a very specific sense in which it's something we are trying to do and accomplish in order to get God to accept us. That is religion. And so whether we're talking about religion or whether we are talking about, on the other hand, the other side of the coin, irreligion, the relativism side, whether it's religious or irreligious, either one of those, they are really two sides of the same coin. Now, how can that be true? How can those be so, so kissing cousins and yet seem so totally different? Well, that's what is often difficult for people to grasp about the nature of the gospel. You see, the irreligious person rejects Jesus entirely. He just does it out of hand. I'm not going to have, I don't need a savior. I can save myself. I'll be fine. Thank you. He rejects Jesus out of hand. And the religious person He's trying real hard, or she's trying real hard. But they use Jesus as an example. They see Jesus as an example, or as a teacher, or as a helper for all the other good things they're doing. He's just kind of like a come alongside. But you know what? In that case, he's not a savior. People see Jesus in those ways, but not as the savior that they desperately need. These are Two different ways, being religious or irreligious, to avoid Jesus. Do you realize that? You can be very religious and avoid your absolute desperate need for Christ. And you can be very irreligious and avoid your need for Christ. That's how they're similar. That's how they're connected. They avoid Jesus as Savior and keep control of their own lives. It's what they do. It's what they can bring to the table. They think that matters with God. And we're about to see God's third way is not at all like that. Both are centered on what we do. That's how they're common denominator. 
And my friends, that's why, listen to me carefully, that's why in our day and age, because there is so much confusion, we think of those two things and we don't realize how close they really are in avoiding the central question of Jesus Christ. And do we have our faith resting in him and in him alone? You see, we need to show people, we need to demonstrate, we need to make it clear to the world both of these errors Because a lot of people are going around preaching the gospel as basically a religious attempt of trying to make God accept us based on what we do. That's not the gospel. We've got to blow that up, and we also need to blow up the relativist idea that God, you can just make him up or her up and whatever, any way you want to, and define your own reality. We've got to deconstruct both religion and relativism. We have to tear that down. We have to make it crystal clear that, no, that's not Christianity. What you're talking about could be true of any number of other religions in the world, but that's not Christianity. We alone have a unique Savior who has come and has done everything for us. And that's the third way. Let's look at for a few moments. Those are the two wrong ways. Now, how do we understand the right way, the third way of the gospel? When the demolition work is done to all of our natural thinking, and by the way, you realize that everything I've described to you in these other two ways are very natural, make common sense. They seem exactly right. They are natural assumptions. They, that, just, that's how we think it should be. But the gospel is not like that. It's out of this world solution. It's an out of this world solution. So what is the gospel? Well, for our discussion purposes, objectively speaking, this is what it is. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now, brothers, I remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. In other words, if you believe what I've told you happened and you trust in that one that rose from the dead, he said, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here are the objective facts of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now that's the objective truth undergirding, underneath, supporting the promise of the gospel. But again, the way it looks like, then how do you get it? How do you appropriate that? That's in the verse that we read. Again, listen again to the the verse in Romans. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Not a righteousness that's going to condemn, but somehow a righteousness that's been achieved by someone else. And you can get it apart from the works of the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they've told it this was going to be the solution all along. That's the ultimate solution. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is based on faith, not on what we do. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And are, but then the answer, and are justified, made right with God, is another way to interpret that. By his 
grace as a gift through the redemption accomplished in Christ. Through his life, through his perfect life, through his death and resurrection, a redemption was accomplished. And how do we get it? It's a free gift. When we believe, when we receive, when we simply say, God, I can't do anything to earn it, deserve it. But you have provided it. You've already gift wrapped it. Gift wrapped it for me in Jesus. Jack Miller, um, a a missionary and former professor at Westminster Seminary, uh, who's gone on to be with the Lord now. He's famous for making, and you've heard me and others uh, make make these statements, these two statements. Uh, One of the things that Jack says, he gives the bad news first. He says, cheer up. You really are worse than you think. In other words, you, you think you know how bad you are. No, you don't. You are far worse than anybody else thinks about you and that you think about you if you knew the truth. And that's not good news. But the second thing he says is where the good news drops. But then he says, but the grace of God is bigger than you can ever imagine. The first thing was truth. He told you the truth. You are worse than you think. And you got no hope of getting there on your own. But the second thing is grace. There's the answer. Truth, you can't, but God did. And it's available to you where you are by faith, simply to receive it as a gift from God. It's already already been given. The grace is bigger and the grace is greater than you can imagine. So truth plus grace equals the gospel. Truth plus grace equals the gospel. Listen to this quote by uh, a guy named... uh, uh, Charlie uh, Peacock, he said, and this is, this is the catcher in the, the, the essence of what the gospel's like. It's so, again, counterintuitive. It's so foreign to everything we think the way it should be. He said, it's just like God to make a hero from a sinner. It's just like God to choose the loser, not the winner. It's just like God to tell a story through the weak. To let the gospel speak to the life of a man who will be the first to say, cheer up, church. You're worse off than you think. Cheer up, church. You're standing at the brink. Don't despair. Don't fear. Grace is near. Emmanuel has come. Grace is near. Grace is here. It's available wherever you are right now. No matter what you've done, where you've been. But it can only be accomplished. Not by you, but by another. And it can only be received humbly by faith. Embrace him. Say, yes, God, I take your gift. What you offer, what you give, what you've provided. Do you see that the whole point of this behind, why, why this title today? What's the point of my sermon? How, what's it have to do with Christmas? Naughty or nice are just other ways of describing those first two wrong ways. Do you see that? Being naughty or nice, those are both of the first two things. And they lead you away from life. Either one of them will destroy you 
a misleading question. I don't know if you've seen in the holidays here, but there's a new Hyundai commercial out. And it happens to have, I just saw this uh, the other night, uh, other night for the first time. And at one point you're driving in your new Hyundai or whatever, and it says, naughty or nice? We're not to judge. Basically, you can have this car, whether you've been good or whether you've been bad. You can, it, we're not to judge. Sounds kind of really wonderful, doesn't it? Naughty or nice, we don't judge. But let me tell you something, God does. And God does not accept naughty or nice as terms of being right with him. Do you understand that? If you do not understand that, I pray God open your eyes because neither one of those will do with God. But he's not asking you to do something. He's asking you to believe in someone. His only begotten son. God completed the gift of everything we needed. It's gift wrapped in Jesus. Look again at verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in. That's been accomplished by Christ Jesus. And it's ours for the simple act of receiving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to whosoever believes in him, trusts in him, relies on him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 1.12, that promise for as many as what? Received him, believed on him, trusted in him. To them he gave that those who, even those who believe on his name, to them he gave authority or the right or the privilege to become the children of God. The children of God. Are you, do you know that? Have you opened, have you received that gift today? May God help it to be true for all of you and for me. Amen. Father, Please help us today to understand and not be confused by, Lord, the natural assumptions and ways of thinking that are so deep in our hearts and just so, the gospel is so counterintuitive to everything we expect and imagine. But, oh Lord, it is a dangerous thing to not understand what the good news is and how it can be received only through faith in your son. It can only be that which sets us free because it's already, everything's been done for us and accomplished by your son. Lord, I pray that every one of my friends here today, Lord, if they have not yet, Lord, put their faith in your son, if they not received your eternal gift of Jesus Christ as their Savior. Lord, let this be the day. Let this be the day that that process so your Holy Spirit will work in and through them to open their eyes, to see, grant them faith to believe that they might trust in Jesus Christ. Father, today, again, thank you for your great gift. Thank you that the only reason why we are here today to gather is to acknowledge and praise you, our Father, for the gift of your Son and the Holy Spirit. 
And so, Father, we thank you for so great a salvation. Help us to celebrate it and rejoice in it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.